I said, you know what, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it by my hands. And I went to my bedroom and I took 18 Percocets and I drank 12 beers and I laid in bed and I said, I don't wanna live like this anymore. I don't want this pain anymore. Uh, please don't let me wake up. And I woke up the next day. I don't know why I do now, but I didn't know why I got up and I had a refill in my bathroom and I opened the bottle and I dumped all 30 of them down the toilet. And I remember looking in the mirror saying, I'm never taking pain medicine again. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. The clip you just heard is a clip from today's episode with my guest, Tim Lodgen. And you guys, I gotta say, today's episode may be one of my favorite shows that I have ever recorded. After 27 years of using and drinking, and after three failed suicide attempts, Tim finally found sobriety and found his way into recovery. And he was diagnosed bipolar at a young age, was not on medication, so initially he was self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Later, he was on medication, but he was still drinking and using, so the medication wasn't working, and he was like searching for you know different cocktails and the perfect formula to try to manage his life and manage his addiction. And after his third failed suicide attempt, he made his way into a rehab and has now been clean and sober for just over a year and is on a quest to share this journey. And you can just hear the hope and the joy in his voice and when we were chatting i could just see it in his face i teared up several times during this episode do be aware that there are suicidal references throughout this episode so please take care while listening today's episode of the week amazing five stars whether you're an addict sober or simply want to better understand how to be an asset and ally to people you love and care about now or in the future this is a podcast you should listen to and share with your friends and family authentic honest raw and actionable Thank you so, so much for your kind words. I cannot tell you guys how much it means to me when you take a moment to write a review, but way beyond that, way beyond being meaningful to me, you guys are actually helping other addicts because writing reviews helps boost us and Apple will recommend us to somebody or Spotify that's searching for addiction or recovery, those kinds of words. Narcan, detox, if they start popping those words in there, will start coming up. But then also I look at reviews before I listen to a show and you may also. So when you guys write a positive review and someone sees that, you guys are directly benefiting addicts out there that you don't even know who might be struggling by tapping the stars on Spotify or tapping the stars on Apple, which prompts you to create an account and write a review. It takes, you know, 14 seconds. So thank you guys so much for your reviews, for your stars on Spotify. And as always, please reach out to me. Let me know what you think of today's show. Let me know if you guys have any questions. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name is Janine. I'm an alcoholic addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And today I have with me Tim Lodgen, who I'm super happy to be interviewing. I was telling, I forget who I was saying this to, I think Rex, we're all just being on each other's shows. Like you're on my show. I was on Brett's. Brett was on mine. I was on No Love. You were on No Love. No Love's been on my show. I'm interviewing for Jeff Jeff Vickers' show in a few weeks. Like it's kind of cool. I feel yeah. like we're all just like bouncing around. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be on Jeff's in May. I was on Brett's last month. 
I know. I know. I'm supposed to be on Jeff's in May too, actually. That's so funny. So we'll just jump right into it. If you don't mind, let's start with just a little intro about, you know, who you are, where you're from and how you started using and what your drug of choice was or alcohol or, or, or whatever it was. Yeah, um, so my name is Tim Lodgen. Um, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, born and raised here. I've, I've lived here my entire life. Uh, I'm 45 this year. And, um, you know, growing up, I was an athlete. I played baseball, football. I was a, uh, actually a Golden Glove boxer and Junior Olympic boxer. Um, and I was almost a professional skateboarder um, at one time. I grew up with, um, I don't know if you've watched Jackass, um, yeah. but one of, one of the members, Brandon Novak, Okay. He, he is my childhood friend. We grew up two streets over from each other and we would skateboard all the time. Um, and Bucky Lasik is from Baltimore. We would skateboard with him. He's one of the best skateboarders out there. So I grew up always playing athletics. I mean, I was always very physical and very outgoing and just always out there. I didn't do drugs or alcohol. Um, I, I, the very first time I tried alcohol was in ninth grade. And my uh, friend of ours had a freshman welcome to high school party. And that was the first time I ever tried alcohol. And it was Colt 45 malt liquor. Yes. <laughs> and I got so drunk. Sure. And the next day I was so sick to my yeah. stomach. I was throwing up just a whole hangover at 13 or 14 years old, however old it was. And I didn't drink or do drugs or touch anything until senior year of high school. Okay. So you were um, a cool kid. If you got invited, because I'm just going to tell you right now, seniors typically did the freshman parties and I was never invited to any of those, which was probably kind of good. So you were cool if you were going to those, if you were going to those parties. So you were a cool guy. I got the picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. I was I was voted best looking in what senior year of high school. Yeah, I was, which doesn't matter now, but yeah, I, I had a bunch of friends. But I never was... And I was never that person that was part of a clique. I hung okay. out with everybody. Right, right. So if the jocks were having a party, I'd go there. If the stoners yeah. were having a party, I'd go hang out with them. And, yeah. like, you know, I just hung out with everybody. I didn't have a certain group that I hung out with. But senior year, um, I had signed up for the Marine Corps the summer before senior year. Okay. So I already knew what I was doing when I graduated high school. I was going into the Marine Corps. Um, my whole family, all the, mil all the men in my family were all military all served in Korean War, World War II, Vietnam, Iraq. So I just already knew I was going into the military. So when senior year came around, I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna have some fun this year because next year shit's gonna get real and I'm just gonna go out and have some fun. So I started smoking pot. Um, I was doing LSD, um, taking pain pills. I was drinking. Um, I even tried PCP a couple of times. Really? I, yeah, whatever was... Is that even around anymore? I feel like PCP is like quaaludes. They're like gone. I don't know that either one of those things are around anymore. Unfortunately, it is still around, oh. but it's one of those, it's one of those things. You got to know somebody that knows somebody that knows sure. somebody. What does PCP feel like? It feels like acid on steroids. Oh um, yeah, you, you, it's like an out-of-body experience. You feel oh. as if you're, you're 10 times stronger than normal. Okay. Um, it's really an intense feeling that only lasts for like two hours. Oh, crazy. It's not a long lasting substance. Um, so I, I, thank God I only tried it four times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in my high school, in my senior year, it was readily available. Oh, crazy. I mean, this, this would tell you how I graduated in 94. So in 94, 
they would sell them in the old film canisters, the old black film canisters that you would have to go take your film and get developed from Fuji huts. And uh, they would they would sell the canisters and you would buy them for like a hundred bucks. And oh my God. if you or four friends bought that thing, it'd be gone in like 30 minutes. Yeah. So, oh, that's so but, crazy. how crazy is it that we used to take cameras to like CVS and wait two days to see your pictures? There was no... But you know what I mean? And some of my audience is going to have like no recollection of this at all. No. But I remember me and my girlfriends, we would be taking selfies, but you had no idea what that shit looked like for another three days when you picked it up from Walgreens or whatever. <laughs> nope. And then it'd be a surprise to you too. I didn't know that was in a picture. Oh my God, look at that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. And we had, we had drive up. You drop off your film in a drive through. Right. Right. Pick it up in the next couple of days. Like you said. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're, we're, I'm getting old. I'm 45. Um, <laughs> But you know, senior year, you know, it was I, I was I was partying with everybody, you know, and and my big thing was pot, LSD, and and drinking. And um, when it first began, it was on the weekends. As soon as Friday came, it was time to have fun. Friday, Saturday, and then I found myself that it would run over into Sunday, and then it would start running over to Monday, and then I stopped doing all my athletics. Oh. I stopped skateboarding. I stopped boxing. Um, I stopped playing football and I started to hang out with the guys that started to cut class and go ride through the park and get high and drink. And um, I started to miss a lot of school. My grades started to go down. And again, I didn't care because I was going in the military and they don't look at your grades from high school. Right. So That's for, true. for me, it, it didn't really matter. You know right. I mean? I was I was in a phase for me. I was going to have fun and then go in the military and then straighten my life back up. Sure. The only thing that stopped when I got into the military was the drugs. The drinking actually escalated by 10 times fold. I mean, as soon as we got in there, that's, it was almost expected that you drank beer. So did you graduate high school? You finished? Yeah, I graduated high okay, school. So you did graduate and then you went into the Marine yep. Corps. Okay. Yep. Actually, the, the last quarter of my high school year, I actually made honorable. I don't even know how, but I okay. did. And my mom, <laughs> I remember my mom saying, and you couldn't do this all four years of high school. That's so like, funny. I don't, I don't know, but because I was actually scared I wasn't going to graduate because yeah. I had been cutting cut class so much and missing. I mean, I'd have the first two periods, no misses, and then third, fourth, and fifth period, 75 absences. And my mom's like, so what, you go to school and leave and then come back? Like, it was yeah. just, yeah, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I, didn't, exactly I, what I, did. I, I didn't like third, fourth, and fifth period. So right. you go get high, I come back and finish class. I kind of did the same thing. I wasn't getting high, though. I was already at GW. I told you I went to GW. I'd gotten early admission. So I kind of did the same thing because I had worked really hard my whole high school. And then my senior year, I was like, fuck it. I already got into GW. You know what I mean? And so I would blow off like the last few periods every single day. But then at some point I was like, "Uh oh, they might actually rescind my admission. So towards the end, I like started going again. But I think sometimes too in high school, they expect. And it's like, and I think sometimes for addicts too, it's like, and I don't know if you feel like you were already addicted back then. I definitely wasn't, but say I had been, it's easy to be like, oh, it's senioritis, like everybody else has. And the teachers are going to kind of let you finish anyways, you know? Right. Now, it's actually that you funny that you said that, because I do remember a couple of times when like a Wednesday or Thursday would come and I would get that anxiety feeling of, I can't wait until tomorrow because I'm going to a party and I can get messed up. Interesting. So that's really was like the first signs to me that 
I was looking forward to it. Like my body was almost telling me it needed it. And I ignored that. Right. You know I mean? I was like, okay, maybe it's just anxiety. You know, I've always had anxiety, always had panic attacks. And that, that does stem from at the age of 14, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but I never took any medicines. Oh, you um, didn't? Not, not, my mom was totally against me taking wow. any medicine as a teenager. Okay. Um, but she always thought functional. I was, yeah, well, to a point, my senior okay. years when it started to go down and coincidentally, it's when I started to use. Right. So my bipolar got really out of control. Okay. Um, my, my highs would be really high. My lows would be extremely low where I, I wouldn't take a shower for a month. I wouldn't want to brush my teeth. I wouldn't want to comb my hair, get a haircut. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't correlate the two for a very, very long time. It's interesting that you look, cause I did the exact same thing. And I wonder if a lot of addicts do this. So when I first started doing Coke in college, it was not out of control at all, but I had a feeling in my soul where I thought I'm problematic with this though, even though I kind of mm. wasn't internally, right. I was like, no, this feels, I, I feel like I might have a problem here, even though I'm only doing it once a week. Like I had this weird gut internal feeling that like you, I completely ignored because everybody else was doing it too. And like, I wonder if that, you know, it says, I don't know if you're a 12 step person at all, but yes. Yep. It, okay. It talks about in the big book, like, I forget where it, in the very beginning in Bill's story where he sees the ominous warning, he, he like the grenadier who died um, from drinking too much. And he right. had a weird feeling too. And he was young and he was not out of control yet, but he thought that was an ominous warning that he felt a little in the back of his mind. And when I read that, I remember thinking, man, I felt that too when I was young. And it sounds like you kind of felt that too in high school. It's like, and it's so easy to dismiss early on, but like for, for people listening, if you're earlier in that stage, like, I don't know, there might be something to that. Like you've got, I think your soul and your spirit has the ability to kind of talk to you and be like, Hey uh -huh. man, you're, you're not wrong. This is a problematic for you. You know what I mean? I don't know, but I totally dismissed it too. No, absolutely. And the more sober I get and the more research I do and the more reading I do, you know, none of that was coincidence. And, mm -hmm. and we really do need to learn to trust our gut instinct yeah. because that comes from someplace else. Right. That's something else telling us, you know, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this or this isn't a good situation. You shouldn't be in it. And you really should listen to that. Um, it, it's not coincidence. It's, right. it's not it's not just another thought in your head that's totally. coming from someplace else. Totally. Absolutely. And, and I ignored, I, I completely ignored it. I really did think it was, I was 18 and, and it was just a phase I was going through. Um, I do remember feeling ashamed that, that I drank a lot and I smoked and, and partied a lot because I was an athlete, you know, I, and, and as soon as I stopped doing that, I definitely lost a piece of myself, a piece of my identity. Yeah. You know, because that's who I was. That's who everybody looked up to as. I mean, you know, I, I kind of had a reputation, you know, to always excel at everything I did. And I now know that it was my bipolar that actually helped me do that. Because when I got in manic mode, I would train heavier and longer oh, than everybody else. I had no off. I had no off button. Okay. I would just continue to go, 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 go. And that oh, would wow. last for, for weeks. And then when that 
rush of adrenaline that, that manic stopped, I didn't come back to normal. I went way past normal down into the valley, into the depths. And I was completely depressed more than a usual person would get sad. Right. I would then start to do the, why am I like this? Uh, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be normal? Why, why do I have a, a malfunction in my brain receptors? Why, why was I born like this? I would do the whole woe is me kind of a thing as a teenager. Um, and my mom would just always be like, you're just a very emotional young man. You know, you just, you're very in touch with your emotions. You just have to get in under control. She kind of was in denial at the fact that I had bipolar. Right. Um, and we're talking early, early nineties, late, yeah, like maybe 88, 89, 90. And back then bipolar wasn't as known or as researched as it is almost about 30 years now, Jesus. Yeah. As it is now. So, um, she didn't really accept that. Um, so it was kind of ignored. And if I would have told the Marines that I had bipolar and I was diagnosed by a physician, I wouldn't have been able to join the military. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, that makes sense, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, it, would, it would be a psych, psychiatric discharge. Oh. You wouldn't have been able because you have a psych issue. Okay. Now, okay. being that I had bipolar and in the Marines, it helped me exponentially. Okay. Um, you know, I graduated top of my class. Um, I was in charge of the platoons. Um, everything I did was, I was always in the top five of my class, no matter what, shooting, drilling, <clears throat> training, no matter what, I was always, and I was always put in charge of people. Mm -hmm. I was just, but when I was in for that long period of time, um, we drank almost every single day. As soon as four o'clock came in the afternoon, and we were done and we know we didn't have to be back in formation till 3 34 a.m in the morning we left base and we went to the bars we went to the strip yeah. clubs and we drank and at 18 19 and 20 years old the bars around the bases their motto was if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country you're old enough to have a cold beer wow their only stipulation was after you ordered the beer or order your shot or whatever you were drinking you couldn't stand there holding it in case an authority walked in you could take your drink and put it back down and just stand next to it, but you couldn't physically have it in your hand. So I'm going to be honest. There's a part of me that agrees with that philosophy. I, <laughs> I mean, too, not to go down that road right now, but like when you just said it, I'm like, that's kind of fair, but it know. is. <laughs> and, and at 18, 19 and 20 years old, you're like, hell yeah, I'm going to die for you. You better of give course. me a goddamn beer. You're going to give me a fucking um, beer. Yeah. Um, just out now, of curiosity, did you go to Paris Island? Is that where you did? Boot camp? I did. I okay. did go to Paris Island. Okay. Yeah. I'm from Georgia. Yeah. So a lot of the boys went to Paris Island. I remember. Yeah. The guys that go to San Diego out in California, we call them Hollywood Marines because they're not, sure. we have a, we have a, a little butt heads of that. That's um, hilarious. Paris Island is, is where they make Marines. That's the original boot camp for the Marine Corps. Okay. So yeah, I was in South Carolina. Then I got stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And that's where I spent my two and a half years. Okay. Um, I, I did do six months in Somalia in 95. It was during peacetime, though. The war had just ended. Um, so we were there just to basically be safety and police, um, to police the area, make sure. I did see a lot of, lot of shit, um, deaths. I saw, you know, a lot of blood. A lot of, I was never shot at. I never had to shoot at anybody. But just cleaning up the mess of the aftermath of a war was very yeah. traumatic to me. Um, and again, in 94, 95, 96, PTSD was not a government 
they didn't acknowledge PTSD at that time. Really? Not in the early 90s, late 80s. Oh. They, they, they knew you had a traumatic experience, okay. but there was no definition post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, I didn't know that. That, that was not founded at that time. So when you got out and you got discharged, they were just like, okay, well, here's, here's your medical, go see a psychiatrist if you need to. And basically here's your papers, have a good day. Okay. You know, there was no follow-up to what you have been through. Okay. Um, so my drinking escalated 10 times fold and we were drinking every day that we got off every single day. And we would always get up at three thirty, four o'clock, go run three miles, throw up. And it was just, it, and, and we saw our sergeants out at the bars and they would just be like, just make sure you're up at three 30 to go right. run. And it was kind of like expected. It was kind of like no big deal to them. Cause that's what they'd been doing for the last 15 years. And here we are kids. I mean, now that I really look back on 18, 19, 20, we're, we're children. We're, sure. we're, and we're being influenced by these guys in their thirties yeah. that we're looking up to. And they're saying, well, this is how the Marines do it. This is yeah. how we do it. So we all wanted to be like the older guys that we were following, that we were mentoring. So after I did my two, I did two and a half years out of four years. Um, and the reason I did two and a half is I actually ended up breaking my ankle three times in service. And on the third time, um, I was 0311 infantry. And they said, you can no longer do this MOS. Your body's breaking down. Um, so we're going to have to either give you surgery and, and switch your MOS for the next year and a half, or we can give you an honorable discharge and send you home with two years Montgomery Jive bill to go to college. What would you like to do? So I was like, you know what? You guys aren't cutting me open. I'm done. So I ended up coming home. And for the first three months, um, I moved back in with my mom. And the first month was cool. I was like, man, I'm out military, I can relax. I don't have to get up a certain time. I don't have to make my bed. I don't have to do all this stuff. The second month hit and I started to, to lose like, my identity, you know, cause I, I thought I was gonna be in the Marines for a long time. And this is now who I was. I always had a problem with who was I, you know? Um, in high school, I was the athlete, the, the guy that had all the girlfriends, like the popular kid. And in the Marines, I was always one of the top guys. And now all that's gone. And high school's over now. And people have moved on during college, doing their own thing. So I don't, I didn't have that. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm 20 years old. Now I got to get a job. I got to start paying bills. I got to move out of my mom's house. I can't live here forever. Cause I thought 20 was too old to be living at your parents' house. And um, depression sat in that second month. Going into the third month, I found myself really depressed. Um, I hadn't showered in almost a month, hadn't shaved, no haircut. I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't sleeping properly. And I got to a point where I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. I didn't know why I was here. I didn't know my purpose. And I actually went into my, my stepfather's armoire and I pulled his gun out and I sat it on my lap and I contemplated using it. Thank God at that time at 20 years old, I had a girlfriend and I called her and I told her what was, was going on. And she was over my house within five minutes and she was able to help me take that away. I did tell my mom, I was feeling extremely sad, but I didn't ever told her about the gun because I think I thought she would freak out and have me committed. And I didn't want to go through all that, but she did end up making doctor's appointments for me at 20 years old. And I got back into to seeing a doctor and that's when I first, got on medication for bipolar disorder. Okay. Um, now at that time I was, um, I just got done doing two and a half years and I was 
used to drinking every day. So when I got home, the drinking didn't stop. It maybe diminished a little bit, not to every day, but at least four days out of the week, I was still drinking. And now I'm on bipolar medicine, which is now intensifying the effects uh, from the alcohol. Alcohol is intensifying it. And it wasn't working because I was drinking. Well, I didn't know that in my early 20s. And I never, I never told the doctors, well, I'm drinking and I'm smoking pot again now that I'm home. I didn't tell them that. So their solution was, well, that, that, that medicine is not working. So let's change that medicine. Let's change the dosage. Let's up it up. Well, those aren't working. Why don't we put these two together? And if those two aren't working, what's at a third one? Let's up the dosage on that. Let's change it over here. So I went through that for years oh my God. because I never exposed the fact that I was drinking and smoking pot and doing pain pills whenever I got a chance to get them. I never told the doctors that. So they're, they always thought it was just the medicine not working and they never found that, that proper mixture that would help my bipolar disorder. So that went on all through my twenties. Would you have a job from time to time or did you work? So time to time is a great description. Okay. That's why so, I said it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm 45 from the time I've gotten out of the Marine Corps up until now, I've had 46 jobs. Oh my God. Okay. What kind of stuff would you do? I worked at a grocery store. I was a salesman for different companies a couple of times. <laughs> um, carpenter. I was a manager of an 84 lumber for a couple of years. Okay. I hung so gutters, okay. just different. I worked in a warehouse, shipping, you know, I just, I would find these jobs that um, paid okay and were close to my house, basically. And I'd go there, like the next best thing since sliced bread for three, four months, get past probation. And then I'd just start calling out, not wanting to go and, and eventually either quitting or get fired. Right. And then have and starting that cycle over again. Right. But I always did find myself going back into a carpentry type job. Okay. Um, so, uh, that's what I've actually been doing now for the last 10 years is oh, okay. being a carpenter. And I've always liked being a carpenter. Um, so that was always my fallback. I just always like, cause I, I like to draw and paint too. So I'm a kind of an artist and always did that in high school and stuff too. So carpentry to me is like artistry. You take something really ugly and nasty and you rebuild it up and make it look beautiful and, and pretty. And, and it's, you're doing it. It's a self gratifying job for me because I'm doing that. Nobody else is doing it. It's, it's all on me and I'm making something look really nice. Do you do like fit, like, um, finish, finish work, like, like furniture or do you, cause my, my husband's in carpentry, he does it construction, like large scale. And my dad yes. does carpentry too. He builds like furniture and my brother is in carpentry too. And he does finish work. So I kind of know a little bit about it. What type of, I'm just kind of interested. What type do you do? So I'm basically more home improvements. I'll go in, I'll, oh, cool. I'll, gut okay. your, I'll gut your complete bathroom. I'll reframe it. We'll run the piping, we'll run the electric, and then I'll do the drywall, install, okay, cool. pull it, showers, paint, trim doors, floors, everything. I'll make it, I'll complete the whole process. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. So I just do a different, like two years ago, I was working on an apartment building. We had 35 apartments. We gutted all 35 apartments and rebuilt the whole entire building. Oh, cool. Um, okay. Now I'm doing private contracts for companies that we go in, we'll do the bathrooms, we'll do the kitchens. And it keeps me, I'm technically, I'm a subcontractor. I work for myself, but I work for these companies that keep me busy. They keep giving me jobs and, and I work for myself technically. Okay, um, <clears throat> but I've always found myself going back to that. But, you know, going into my twenties and my thirties, just out the alcohol and drinking and, and 
smoking and taking the pain medicines and, and the medicine wasn't working for my bipolar. And I never continued to tell him that. And this went on for the last 20 years. I mean, and it was up and down, up and down. <clears throat> the drinking got more and more. And um, on March 15th, 2017, um, I had had, I think like almost seven surgeries within an 18, 19 month period. And the, the doctors were giving me pain medicine. What were they like, for all your surgeries? So um, in my, at the age of 32, um, I was missing competing. I was missing doing athletics. So okay. I actually got into mixed martial arts. Oh, okay. And, and I started fighting on local televisions and casinos. And, and I actually did pretty good for a couple of years. But for those five years when I was doing it, my body was breaking down. It okay. just wasn't holding up. Okay. So I tore my rotator cuff. I had two neck surgeries, two hernia operations. Um, okay. I, I, I tore ligaments in my arm, like all from just breaking down. And so injuries due to fighting. And so you were correct. consistently yeah. getting surgeries. Okay. And they were giving yeah. you meds. They just kept giving them to me. And they wouldn't like you go there and the surgeon gives you your pain medicine. But then after the 30 days, you get, um, what is it? Um, you get put over to a pain management clinic. Oh. So now, so now the surgeon's not dealing with you directly. You're directing, you're directing with another company that does pain management only. Okay. And they manage your pain. They don't try to get you off it. They just try to manage your pain. So if five milligram isn't working, they'll give you 10. If 10 isn't, they'll give you 20. Their goal is not to get you off. Is that still a thing? Are there still pain management clinics or is that kind of started to go away? Thank God it has started to go away. Okay. And I was going to say, I thought it had. Yeah. And the procedures form are way more strict than they were okay. Okay. years ago, which is a great thing because right. the opioid epidemic is, is insane. Right. Um, but in, the, in 2017, 2018, they would just keep giving them to me, keep giving them to me. And <clears throat> I was taking, you know, eight, 10 milligram perks or oxycodones a day and drinking 12 beers a day oh my God. and smoking pot. And to me, I was like, well, I got, I got my three, I got my trifecta. It would make me feel good. Sure. And I was losing jobs. I was fighting with my wife, wasn't getting along with my kids. I wasn't getting along with my mom. And I found myself in a very, very deep, deep depression. In the midst of all of this though, you met someone and got married. Yeah. So oh. when I, when I got, when I got home from the Marines, um, at 20 years old, um, I met a, girl who actually I went to middle school and high, with, high school with. Okay. And we were friends. We grew up in the same neighborhood. So I knew her and uh, we just started dating um, right out of when I got out of the Marines. A year later, we moved in together. A year after that, she had our daughter. Okay. And we ended up didn't get married till seven years later. Okay. So we moved in, had a kid and then got married. Sure. Um, <laughs> so you and, all have been together know, this whole time. This is still your current wife, right? Yes. We're to get it's 27 years this year. Yeah. So what was her, what was she thinking while you were drinking and using and losing jobs? I mean, was she annoyed with you? Yes. And no. Okay. Um, so she would do the whole, give me ultimatums. Okay. Um, you got to stop drinking this week. You drank a lot last week. Okay. You're doing, you're taking too much pain medicine. Why don't, why don't you give me the bottle today? I'll leave you two for the day. And when I get home, I'll give you a, whatever else you need. Okay. She would do that for a little bit and then she would feel bad 
And then let me do it again. I love her to death, but she definitely was a, uh, what's that word? Um, Enabler. Yes, enabler, big time. Okay. Big time. So she was just trying to manage this, but you guys still managed to stay together the whole time. Wow, that's crazy. That's interesting. Um, I don't, I, I, she's a damn, she, she deserves a freaking peace medal. I don't know. She deserves. I was going to say that, but I'm glad you said uh, it. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the shit that I put this woman through, you know, and, and this may jump a little bit, but six months into my recovery, I said, why did you stay with me through all this? And she simply said, because I love you. And I always knew you could be the man that I once married. She never gave up hope on me, even when I gave up hope on myself. And not too many people get that gift. A lot of people lose everything. And I am truly a lucky man to have somebody that never left my side and always believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. It's, I'm so grateful for, I'm so grateful for her. It's, it's, it's unimaginable. It's just incredible. Um, but yeah, so um, March 15, 2017, I, I was done. I couldn't live this way anymore. Um, couldn't stop taking pain medicine. Doctors kept giving them to me. Couldn't stop drinking. And I actually got scared. I was like, this is how people die. I'm taking pain medicine and I'm drinking to excess. People die like this in their sleep. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to die, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it by my hands. And I went to my bedroom and I took 18 Percocets. And I drank 12 beers and I laid in bed and I said, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want this pain anymore. Uh, Please don't let me wake up. And I woke up the next day. I don't know why I do now, but I didn't know why. I got up and I had a refill in my bathroom and I opened the bottle and I dumped all 30 of them down the toilet. And I remember looking in the mirror saying, I'm never taking pain medicine again. And I was sick for seven to 10 days, throwing up, going to the bathroom, chills, tremors, nausea, um, insomnia, the whole thing. But I remember keep looking in the mirror and telling myself, don't forget this feeling. You never want to go through this again. I, for some reason, was just done with the pain medicine and something in my head said, like, we're done with the pain medicine, but I didn't stop drinking. Okay. I didn't stop drinking it. Now it was kind of a relief. Well, the pain medicine's gone. So I'm not probably going to die now, but I can still drink. Right. So that next day, March 16, 2017, <clears throat> I get in my truck and we have this beautiful reservoir that's down here. People go fishing and walk their dogs and do picnics. And I get in my truck and I'm driving through it and um, I'm banging on the steering wheel and I'm yelling up at the sky why am I here? What's my purpose? Why am I an addict? Why, why have I let everybody down in my life? Why do I keep losing jobs? Why am I like this? Like, please give me a sign that I'm not alone, that I have some reason I'm here because I'm a piece of shit father, piece of shit husband, son, friend. Like, what, what's going on here? Why am I here? Please send me a sign because I, I, I want to know that I'm not alone. And I get around to the bend in the park and my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his vehicle and hit a tree and, and lost his life at the age of 17. So there's a memorial on this tree that's been there still today. And you can write a book to him and put flowers on the tree. And I get out of my truck and I go up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, and I'm crying. I'm like, why am I here, man? I, I can't stop drinking. Uh, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I don't know what what's going on in my life, just please send me a sign that I'm not alone, that everything's going to be okay. 
and I get back in my truck and I go to leave the park. And instead of parking on the right-hand side where traffic is going, I pull off to the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic. And I sit there for about another 10 minutes. I'm crying. Like I couldn't drive. Like I, I was just a blubbering mess. And this car pulls up and we're, we're nose to nose. And this man gets out of his vehicle and he gets his dog out of the back seat. And I'm watching this man get out. And it dawns on me. <clears throat> it was my best friend's father, whom I hadn't seen since 1996, the day of the funeral. And I get out and I say, Mr. Bill, what are you doing here? And he comes over and he says, Timmy, are you okay? And I fall to the curb and I said, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I can't stop. And he walks over to me and puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here at 10 a.m. this morning and walk the dog. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina on vacation. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. He said, I truly believe I was sent here to help you. Oh, my gosh. I can't explain that experience. But I, I took it as I'm being watched over and nothing's going to happen to me. And for the next four years of my life, I drank the most I've ever drank in my entire life. Wow. Okay. My alcoholism went through the roof because my addictive brain, my addictive personality told me I was being protected and that nothing was going to happen to me. So for the next four years, that I makes drank sense. the most I've I ever done the same drank thing. in my life. Yep. And um, I didn't take it as a sign from someplace else. Wow. So I, I, the beer turned into whiskey. Um, I stopped drinking beer altogether. I started drinking fireball whiskey. And <clears throat> again, my alcoholic and my addictive personality stepped in and said, don't buy a big bottle of fireball whiskey because then you'll know how much you're drinking. Just buy the miniatures because you can throw them away and you can forget how much you drink. Well, at the end of my addiction, before I went to rehab, I was drinking 25 miniatures a day. Oh my God. I poured one out one day and they're two and a half shots per miniature. So oh I was drinking gosh. almost 60 shots of, of whiskey a day. Oh my gosh. Um, and um, I had just gotten a new truck. I go to the liquor store <clears throat> and I hit something. I still do not know what I hit. I don't know if it was a car or a stop sign or whatever, but I do remember coming home and told my wife, I hit something, I'm going to bed. And I go to bed. I wake up the next morning, just like a true alcoholic. Good morning. How are you? I'm going to go to the store and go get milk and water. And she's like, how are you going to do that? I was like, in my new truck in the driveway. She's like, go look at your truck. Oh, no. So I go outside. My right passenger wheel is hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely smashed in. And she pops her head out the door. And she's like, you don't remember what you hit, do you? And I said, I, I have no recollection. She said, Tim, you could have killed somebody or killed somebody else. She's like, you can't stay here anymore. You have to leave and go figure this out because I can't go through this anymore. Wow. So I called AAA. They come and put my spare tire on. I call my friend. I'm like, hey, um, my wife doesn't want me here. Can I come stay at your house for a couple of days? And he's like, sure, man, no problem. Come on over. So I get to his house. And his solution to the whole thing was, well, you're kicked out of your house and you can't go back for a couple of days. You want to go to the bar? Sure. Let's go to the bar. <laughs> so now I have something to really drink about because I just right? got kicked out of my house. <laughs> So we go to the bar and we get shit faced. And as I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody. Oh my God. The next day. And um, 
I get out and I look at the guy's car and thank God his car actually had no, nothing wrong with it. The front of my bumper was all smashed in. I looked at him. I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, well, your car's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him <laughs> on his back and I took off. Yeah. I, was, I knew I was going to jail. I, mean, sure. I was out. I was like, I'm out of here. So I get to my friend's house. I'm like, dude, I can't stay here. Dude. I was like, I, I got to go be by myself and figure something out. So I leave his house, stop at the liquor store, get 10 more miniatures. And I go and I sit at a park and ride for the next 48 hours. Turn my phone off and I drink for the next two days and listen to sad ass music and pity party the shit out of myself. And um, seven after 10, Friday morning, March 5th, I turn my phone on. Two minutes later at nine after 10, the phone rings. This is after two days of not having the phone on. The phone rings and it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he says, Lodge, what the F are you doing? And I said, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I'm drunk, and I'm in my car. He said, good, motherfucker, that's what you need. He said, I just got off the phone with your mom and your wife. We have a plane ticket set for you this evening at 8.30 p.m. to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida. He said, I promise you, if you get on that plane, everything that you've lost will gain back 10 times fold. He said, just get on the plane. You have to do me one thing, though. He said, you have to call me after you pass security because I don't want you to get dropped off at the airport and jump in a cab and take off. I want to know that you're getting on that plane. I said, OK. So I hang up the phone and like, I guess 15 minutes go by. My wife calls me and she's like, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Can you please come home and take a shower and pack your bags and try to get some sleep and maybe eat something? This was like one o'clock. She said, you got like six, seven hours for your plane leave. She said, come home and try to rest up and, and get your stuff together. I'm like, okay. So I go home and I pack my bags, take a shower. I couldn't eat at this point. Now my, my anxiety is hundred miles an hour. My panic's setting in. I'm so worried about going to rehab and I'm thinking about just how did I get myself into this mess like this and what a disappointment I was. And, and, and I started doubting that I, I could do this yeah. and um, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed and uh, my addiction grabs me by the hand and walks me to the basement and puts a rope around my neck and tells me to stand on the bucket and step off. And my wife must have known I wasn't in the bedroom because about two, three minutes go by and she comes down in the basement and she sees me in the corner of the basement. And uh, she's like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't do this. I was like, I just want the pain to stop, but I don't know how. She says, please, Tim, please get down. Do you know what this will do to your children? Please get down. Everything is going to be okay. So I get down and I fall to the floor and uh, I cry for about 10 minutes. And I go upstairs and I call my friend. I'm like, hey, Brandon. I said, I'm going tonight, man. I was like, I have to. I said, if not, this is going to kill me. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. And he hangs up. I get to the airport. My mom drops me off and I uh, get past security. And I call him. I say, hey, man, I'm past security. I got 35 minutes till I go. Again, all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Everything that you've lost, you'll get back 10 times full. And he hangs up. I go to sit down at the chair. 
to be called to go board the plane. And as I sit down, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope. It comes over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I've never felt in my entire life. And something in my head said, everything is gonna be okay. My anxiety went away, my panic attacks went away, my worry went away. And for the first time in my life, I knew I was gonna be okay. And that this is the time in my life at the age of 44 that I was finally gonna get the help that I truly needed to save my life. I got into rehab and I, and I went full addicted mode. I didn't miss any meetings. I went to extra meetings for military members. I did all the homework. I spoke, I, I raised my hand, I volunteered. I did everything that I could wanted because something happened to me in that airport. And um, what a shame that would be to not acknowledge that, that second time that something tried speaking to me. Yeah. That feeling that I got of hope, I've never felt that before in my life. And it was as if the addiction was taken from me. It was as if all my doubt and worry was, was taken from me and something touched me and said, we, we've got you, we're here to help you. And, you know, today I have one year, one month, two weeks. Wow. And I have not thought about drugs or alcohol, not even one time. It has not crossed my mind. I know I don't know if that's normal or not normal, but all I know is if is that that addiction part of my brain has not come up not even one time. Wow. I, I think I'm truly gifted and, and truly blessed because I hear so many people that don't experience that 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 psychic change, that um that spiritual awakening. And I truly believe I was gifted with both of them. You know, and after 27 years of addiction and alcoholism, when I first got sober, I always said, why, why did I have to go through 27 years when some people only do a year or five years or 10 years? And the more I found out about myself, the more I started to realize my purpose in life was to share my experience of hope and recovery. I finally realized that my story was 27 years. And in order for me to be as genuine and truthful as I needed to be, that's what I had to experience in my journey to be able to show people that recovery truly is possible, no matter how long or how short your, your journey of addiction is or mental illness. You know, finally, for the first time in my life at 45 now, I'm on the proper bipolar medicine. It actually works. Imagine right. that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I found balance in my life. Um, you know, I, I go to meetings. I have a sponsor. I go to the gym every single day. I spend time with my family. I eat the healthiest that I've ever eaten in my entire life. And I truly believe that that balance between mind, body, and spirit has what changed my life. Because you can't have one without the other. And if you do have all three, it does make it a lot easier to balance everything out. You know, when I first did come home from, re from rehab, I did 98 and 90. Wow. And I remember being in, in there and a guy was like, you got to do 99, you got to do 99. And I remember thinking to myself, how in the hell am I going to do 90 meetings in 90 days? And he said, did you drink every day? Did you drug every day? And I said, yeah. He said, how long? I said, I don't know, some in the morning and, and pretty much all night long. He said, so four or five, six hours a day. I'm like, yeah, that's about right. He said, you don't have an hour for the rest of your life. Right. And I was like, oh, 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> you, you got me on that one. So I, I, I totally took that seriously. And I do believe, you know, that's not only going to meetings, but that also sets the discipline up in your brain to, to go to meetings and start doing the step work and taking it seriously. Right. If you're only doing it once or twice a week for the first 90 days, I don't think you pick up as much information and you don't generally get the gratitude of what you have went through. I, I agree with that. So I agree with a bunch of what you just said. So I also used for a really long time, 15 years. And I think that the reason it was that long for me is I was, I was really pretty arrogant. And I think that if I had quit even one time sooner, if even one attempt had worked, I would have believed it was me and not God helping me. And it took me until I had, I had dragged, I beat the shit out of myself so much for so long that finally, when I stopped, I, there was no way it was me because I had tried every single way. And so I was like, okay, this was not me. There's no way I can say this was, was, this was me. This was only like God, right. Finally assisting this, you know what I mean? Assisting me with this. And like the whole psychic change too. My understanding is that it can happen in two different ways. It can be like that burning bush moment that you experienced, or it can be gradual over time. And mine was definitely gradual over time because like for the first two years, I definitely still thought about using, I was a heroin addict. And oh. now I feel the same way that you do, which is that I never think about it ever, but I did in the beginning, I definitely did. And now I'm at the place where you are, where I literally like never think about it. Um, but I think, but this time when I got back from kicking for the last time, I also went to meetings every single day and it did help me too, just to do that, to, to actually do that. It, it does, you know, and I actually have a sponsee now and um, <clears throat> he's got, he's coming up on 60 days and he said, can you give me some advice? I said, go to meetings every day. Yeah. He said, yeah, but I've heard the same story five times. I'm like, I understand that. I said, there's other meetings. I said, keep going to meetings. It doesn't have to be the same meeting, but go to different meetings. And I said, and even if you do hear the same story five or six or seven times, something in that story at that time that you hear may stick out when it didn't the last time. Right. I, I was like, but the thing is to keep going to meetings. It's that discipline of going to meetings that you need. It's not generally that story from Bob who says the same thing and you already know the third sentence coming out of his mouth. It's the discipline that you're retraining your brain to do something in repetition. Also, we've been used to indulging our every whim, right? Like, oh, I want to do something. So I'm just going to, and I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that. And so it gets you back in the pattern of like, just because you want to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. And to start to recognize exactly like the discipline and then recognize, you know, this is good for me. This is what I need to do right now. What does your, so you have a year and a month. Yeah. What does your life look like today? What are you doing? I mean, we learned a little bit about it, but like, what does the average day look like for you now? Um, I, I go to work from 7.30 to 3 or 8 to 4. Um, I come home. I, I do stuff around the house to wake my wife happy, dishes or, or <laughs> laundry or take the trash out. And then I go immediately to the gym every single day, um, usually for two hours a day. Um, and then now I have pushed my meetings to the weekends. Okay. Um, it's just my schedule, the way work is. And, and for me, I've got to have that physical activity in my life yes talk about um, you're working on something right now right why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing fitness wise yeah so um you know my whole life I've been athletic I've always worked out I've always done sports and growing up my mom actually was a professional bodybuilder 
So as a young man, I saw my mom always working out, always eating healthy. My uncle was Mr. Universe in the 70s for three really? years in a row. Oh yeah. my God, that's so crazy. And, and his son, my cousin, was Mr. Maryland here in Maryland for a couple of years. So it's ran in my family for generations. I can't believe you're a bodybuilder. That was so rare back down back then. In the 80s, she yeah. was one of the one of the 10 female bodybuilders that were published in a magazine. Oh my gosh, that's and so in cool. the 80s, yeah. In the 80s, it was more of that aerobics thing you would see it like aerobics but she actually was a bodybuilder and that oh, was wow. definitely uncommon oh that's so cool for, for women um she actually ended up retiring after 10 years because that's when the women started doing steroids oh and okay. she didn't want to do that to her body and right. she she's always competed natural and um so but i always grew up with that and i've always had the desire to do it yeah but alcohol and drugs have never let me focus enough and have the determination enough to actually make it happen. Here I am uh, one year and one month sober and um, I'm competing in my first bodybuilding show in June. That's so cool. That I've always wanted to do since a child. Um, and, and for me, I don't even have to place. I don't have to win. The fact that I'm doing it the fact that I've disciplined my body and mind to eat properly, to work out, to do, do the cardio, to do everything that I have to do just to get up on stage and present myself in front of people, I already won. Yeah. I, I've already won. So I don't have a, a stipulation where, man, I better place, I better do the, the fact that I'm healthy enough mentally and physically to be able to make this happen is one of the biggest gifts that sobriety has given me. It's truly amazing. Let me ask you this too, because I'm super grateful that I was even an addict in the first place, because I think that the depths of that despair are directly correlate to like the heights of my joy, specifically as it pertains to how I feel physically, because now that I'm sober, I've been sober seven years. I just taught a spin class, right? I was racing home before I sent this to you. Like I feel so good in my body and everybody feels good in their bodies when they work out, of course, but I know what it feels like to be dog sick, kicking dope, been drinking for so long. You taste like blood in your mouth. You've been drinking for so long. And so to not feel that anymore and to feel healthy in my, like, I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that, that I know that because I feel like it, it increases my levels of joy and health. Now, do you feel the same way? Like, are you, are you grateful that you went through all of that stuff? You know, I, I'm, I actually thank my higher power that I'm an addict for two reasons. Um, you know, people with addictive personalities tend to actually become very successful because we have a mindset of no matter what, we're going to get it done. No right. matter what, we're going to get that high. We're going to get that drunk. So no matter what comes my way, I'm not going to stop now. It has completely shifted into determination and goals and, and getting my goals and making them happen. Um, and, and in the beginning, I, I, I kind of was like, you know, thank you, because I get to experience the 12 steps of recovery. Yeah. The 12 steps aren't just to get you off of addiction or, or alcohol or drugs. They truly transform you as a human being. Totally. They help. They help you with everything going on from a childhood trauma 
to how you deal with your, your loved one or your spouse or your children. It really does give you a broader spectrum of life and it gives you more gratitude of everything that you have around you and, and how to treat people. And I totally agree. I think that I'm so glad that I, and I think people sometimes don't understand that. And there's really kind of a misconception around 12 step that I see really prevalent today. And I'm fully supportive of the idea that there are more ways to recover now. I think that that's a great idea, but I get concerned. I think sometimes younger people think it's all about like God and Jesus Christ and Christianity. And I'm right. like, no, it's not. You, you may meet somebody at a meeting who's like totally is like a Christian and they go to church or whatever, like a Protestant Lutheran kind of church. But you're going to meet a lot of people that do not feel that way, especially in California. Most people don't feel that way. Their concept of spirituality is like surfing, like the beach or hiking, you know, nature. Like they've just got this idea that there's something larger than them. Like whoever guided your friend's dad to be there that day, like right. they have a belief system that there's something outside of them that's sort of like orchestrating the world. Right. And, and that's the belief. And I think sometimes people are like, well, I don't want that God stuff. And I'm like, ah, at least in California, that's not, you know, people say the word God, but they mean typically what I just said. And so I think some, and what I want to say is that the 12 steps are exactly, yeah, what you just said. I mean, they're transformative. They're transformative. Oh, yeah. And I'm so glad I was a drug addict. So I did the 12 steps. Like, I think they benefit anybody you know what I mean? Addict or not, you know, I feel the exact same way. That's another reason. One of the reasons why I'm grateful that I was an addict in the first place is same thing. It led me to the 12 steps. Step 10 changed my life. Step two changed my life. Step two for 30 days, we write down every day in my sponsorship tree, the way that we see like beauty, like God and beauty or the universe somehow, you know, like a sunset or, you know, that would be an extreme example. Like when you saw your friend and it just, I was in such a, place of despair and sadness that 30 days of recognizing beauty in the world was transformative to me i didn't even get clean that time actually i didn't get clean for another two years but i was in rehab oh, wow. yeah when i did my step two and it's it changed my life during that time and i was like man i remember there was this kid in my rehab hiv positive 19 years old he had been prostituted by his family when he was like 12 and got hiv oh. yeah and wow. he took 60 days and his hands were like shaking because he was so nervous and he started crying and he was like, I love my life. I'm so happy. Thank you all. I'm so glad I lived. And I was sitting there 32, you know, all the benefits I've had in my life. And like, that was my step two way that I saw God that day. You know, I was like, if this kid is so grateful and he's made it to 60 days, you know, has no reason in the world that I can see to even, you know what I mean? To like right. be this happy or keep going for, through my limited viewpoint, right? That was like my way of seeing God that day. And I just, I think that the steps are so helpful. And that's one of the things I try to say with my podcast is that I would never push 12 step recovery onto somebody, of course, but I do think it's a little bit, the scope is broader than what people realize. It's not like a Christianity thing. It's a transformative no, thing. No, and, and, and since you touched on that, you know, I've always had a problem with, uh, the word God or the word Jesus and, and the whole religion part of spirituality. For me, I, I believe in a higher power. Oh, right. I, be, I believe that there is something out there that is watching over us and, and is guiding us in, in the direction that he or she feels fit for us to live our life. Right. I'm not going to say it one name is, is controlling me because 
that is a turnoff to a lot of people. As soon as you start, as soon as you start mentioning religion, they're out of are out the front door. But the point is, is to have faith in something. Right. You have to have faith in something because without faith, you're going to be lost in this world. You have to believe that that something is, it, it, even if it's a, a loved one that had passed away, or or your or your animal that passed, you have to believe that something is there because if not, you're going to feel so alone and so lost in this world. Um, and it took me a long time because in the beginning, I was mad. I was like, "If there's a God, I wouldn't be an addict. Right. If there was a God, I wouldn't be born this way." Right. You know, if there was a guy, there wouldn't be children starving in Ethiopia or, or, you know, the murders going on or war. But once you start getting into it and realizing, you know, no, nothing happens to you, it happens for you. And my, my perspective has changed on yeah. a lot of things. And that's a big thing when your perspective changes. Um, you know, I used to say, man, I got to get off work. I got to go to work. I got to pay the bills. I, I got to, you know, put gas in my car. And now I say, I get to go to work. I get a job that I can pay my bills. I can, I have money, so I can put gas in my car. You know, when you change that one little word in a sentence, your perspective on your life completely changes. Right. And now I know things didn't happen to, the, to me. They happened for me to become the person that I was meant to be to be able to share my experience and have the, have the experience to be able to do it. Yeah. Not just, not just say, Oh yeah, I was an addict. I can do that. But I lived through it. I lived through hell on earth to finally start living my, my life this way and to, to share hope and recovery with those still suffering. So if you had somebody who's got 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, they're new in recovery. And if, if you had one thing that you could give them that would be actionable that they could start doing today that you think would help, what would that be? Trust the process. You can't be 21 years old if you're 17. It takes time. Time takes time. And if you show up every day and if you, have a, if you don't have a sponsor, get one. If you have a sponsor, listen to them. It truly is one day at a time. And I know they hear that all the time, but if you just get through that day and you wake up the next morning and you get through that day, before you know it, a month has passed, before you know it, 90 days has passed, before you know it, you're at your six month mark and then you're at your one year. If you start thinking about what you have to do next week or next month, I don't care who you are, an addict or not, it becomes overwhelming. It brings on anxiety and panic to anybody because your mind starts racing and thinking about everything you have to do. So in general, if you take one day at a time every day for anybody, even, they don't even have to be an addict, you live your life more peaceful. It's more of a balanced life. And you're actually able to take care of the responsibilities a lot easier because you don't have 10 things piling up. You're taking care of them one at a time. Yeah. So I would say trust the process, go to your meetings, and don't pick up. Yeah. Also, you had shared something with me off air that I want to kind of touch on. I have discovered so many things over the seven years. Like I, I, I kind of have new realizations over time. And you shared that you kind of had one this past year. The root you feel of your alcoholism and addiction is something that you kind of think you realized this year, if you don't mind sharing what that was. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, as a young man, I grew up with my mom. My father left um, when I was six years old. Um, and I have an older brother who's actually almost 11 years older than me. So he was almost 17 when, when my father left. And I remember growing up and as a six-year-old boy thinking, why did my father leave me at six years old, but he didn't leave my brother until he was almost out of high school? Why didn't my brother love me as much as he loved my brother? Because he stuck around with him for most of his life. Was I the cause of the divorce? Was my dad didn't want to put up with another boy because his other, other son's a teenager? You know, and I would get those phone calls. Hey, son, I'm coming to pick you up for the weekend. And I cannot tell you how many times my mom would pack my bags and I would sit at that front door for hours. And finally the phone would ring and it'd be my father. Oh, I had to work overtime. Uh, something came up. I'll come get you next weekend. And that next weekend would come and it wouldn't come. And I wouldn't see him for a month or two sometimes. And I always put that on me. I always blame myself. Maybe my dad just doesn't love me. And throughout my entire young man growing up as a teenager, and I think even joining the military, because, you know, my dad was in the military, his father was in the military, his father was in the military. I wanted some connection with my dad. I wanted to find out, you know, who I was, like, where did, who was I as, who, who was Tim? Who was Tim? Because I didn't know. And I didn't know nothing about my dad's family. Um, I didn't know where my grand. I didn't know nothing about my grandfather. You know, I didn't find out anything about my dad's family until I got older. So I was always lost as a boy. And for a young man to, who was growing up and trying to find himself in the world, I truly believe a father figure is, is so necessary. I mean, the mom is your mom. I mean, you, little boys love their moms more than anything in the world. But have that guidance from a man to see how he treats a woman, to see how to see how you fix a flat tire on your bicycle, to see how you shave and take care of yourself as a, as a gentleman, you know, and I, I didn't have any of that. And, um, you know, my mom, God bless her. She, she worked two or three jobs and she did everything she could to raise me. And, and she did an exceptional job. I mean, she took care of my, my dad's side portion and her side. Right. So I thank God I had a mom that didn't fall apart and break down. She stood right. up. And she did what she had to do. But, you know, up until my 30s, you know, there was that one time in my 20s, my first house that I bought was 30 houses away from my father on the same street. Oh, so he and lived we, near you the whole time? You just didn't see him that often? We lived in the same two counties difference, 15, okay. 20 minute difference. Yeah, he and, didn't move out of state. And so you think part of you were you were just looking for like your identity. You were reaching for something that that was kind of what drew you to to drink and to use. And have yeah. you do you feel like you've been able to get to peace with that now? I have. So so after becoming sober and, and, and speaking with counselors and, and speaking my sponsor and doing my step work and recovery work and waiting, journal, journaling helped me a lot, you know, and talking to my mom. Um, I finally just realized that, you know, when I, I didn't realize this, my mom told me, Tim, you had nothing to do with why we had a divorce. Your father liked other women. Your father liked running around and your father's pretty much, he's just an egotistical, selfish person. And that's the way your father's always been. It had nothing to do with you as a young boy. He loves you, but he loved himself just a little bit more. And 
I couldn't put up with that. I couldn't have that around my children. So that was like a, a relief. Okay, I didn't have nothing wow. to do with it. Um, and then the more I, I got sober and the more I did research on myself, I realized, man, a lot of the times I was drinking is because I was lost and I was trying to find myself. And I blamed my father a lot of times on drinking. Well, my father didn't love me and I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. So I'm just going to drink or I'm going to drug. And I used that as a crutch for, yeah. for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, this past Sunday, I had my daughter's uh, baby shower and she's having a grant. She's having my grandson. And uh, it was the first day I saw my father in four years. Oh my God. How did it go? What happened? So I'm sitting there and I'm filling out one of the, they were playing baby shower bingo. So I'm filling out, you know, my, my answers. And I can hear him walking through the hall because my father's just one of those guys that everybody's got to know he's there. Um, he's a good looking older man. So he's always just very flirty with everybody and just always trying to be the center of attention. And I heard him come in, but I didn't lift my head off the table. because I'm like, oh, my God, it's been four years since I spoke to him or seen him. Wow. And um, my mom comes over to the table, Tim, your father's here. I'm like, OK. She said, can you? please at least get up and meet him halfway and I was like oh man I didn't get anxiety I didn't have a panic attack it was kind of like okay so now I'm, I'm I'm ready to to put this behind me I'm ready to talk to him and forgive him for me yeah not for him yeah but for my health and my mental well-being so I get up and, and I walk over to him and I'm like, hey, old man, how you doing? And uh, he's like, oh, man. He said, you're getting pretty old yourself. <laughs> and uh, we hugged. And he hugged me. <laughs> the longest he's ever hugged me in my entire life. And he started to cry. My dad's 76. And uh, he said, please, son, let's never do this again. Wow. He said, I love you. And I'm so proud of you. And we hugged again. And um, I never expected those two words to come out of my dad's mouth. I love you and I'm proud of you. And uh, I said, you know what, dad? I said, uh, everything's in the past. I said, I'm, I no longer hold on to things that weigh me down anymore. And I just want to move on it. And I said, if you'd like to have a relationship from here on out, I, I would really enjoy that. And he said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anything else in the world, son. He said, I, I, this was way too long for us not to see or talk to each other. He said, I don't want to, he said, neither one of us are getting any younger. And uh, he said, I like to see my grandchildren. It's been four years since he's seen my children. Wow. And uh, I just, we just got his cut him off. And um, it's the first time he's ever seen me sober. Yeah. So he knows you're sober. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's been checking up with me through my mom. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I remember like the like the fifth month into my sobriety, he called my mom and said, how's Timmy doing? She said, Pete, he's doing really good. He's Aww. he's almost five months sober. He's okay. working his steps. And he said, was well, he ever going to speak to me? And she said, well, Pete, one of the steps is making amends. Okay. She said, so, so I'm sure that he'll, when he's ready, he'll get around to it. And um, I always told my wife I, I, I wanted to speak to him after I had one year okay. because I, I feel as if one year would have been a, a good example that I'm taking this seriously and yeah. and my life has changed for the better wow well I'm really glad you were able to do that and it sounds like your mom is really amazing too she's 
She's 72 and she works out three days a week still. Moms are the best. She's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, If people want to follow along with your fitness journey and all the stuff that you're doing, um, what's your, what's your Instagram? If people just want to look you up. Yeah, it's at T Lodgen at T L O D G E N. And that's my main social media page. I'm on Facebook, but my main thing is Instagram. That's where I put, I post all my before and after pictures on my podcast, try to post some inspirational things about my journey of recovery and hope. So, okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to chat today. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me so much. I really appreciate that. And I'm so glad that we were able to do this today. And uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure talking with you.